Ready to begin, and those of you that got here a little bit earlier heard some very loud, throbbing music when you came in. Uh, does anybody have any idea what that was? Well, the Messiah's going on upstairs, but this was definitely not the Messiah. All right, well, we're continuing our game of random songs that have something to do with the screw tape letters. This one was actually called Hold Me, Thrill Me, Kiss Me, Kill Me, uh, which is a song by a very famous group from Ireland that you have perhaps heard of called U2. And it was one of the themes for the Batman movie. And in the music video, which was one of the highest viewed music videos of all time, there's a section where Bono, the lead singer, is walking down the road, and the whole music video is about his battle between giving in to fame and pop stardom and being true to himself. And so in one scene, he is walking down the road, and he's reading a book, and the camera zooms in on the book, and it's screw tape letters by C.S. Lewis. And then shortly after that, he's run over by the devil. So let that be a lesson to you. Don't read screw tape letters while you're walking down the street. You never know what may happen. So on that note, it's probably a good idea to pray. So let us, let us do that. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity of being together tonight and for being able to gather around this book uh, that has so much wisdom to impart to us about your kingdom. Lord, we pray that as we come tonight that you would open our hearts to what you might desire to speak to us. We pray that the truth of your scriptures uh, would be written in our hearts and that you would use this time to help us understand more and more how to stand against the devil's schemes as we live our faith in this world. And we pray all these things in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So as you see, we are working on drawing lessons about standing against the devil's schemes from the screw tape letters. And it is a great source book for that. And as we said, part of the reason that screw tape letters is such an important book in Lewis's work is that it's really the one that made him famous, particularly in the United States. And we have this Time magazine cover from the 1940s where you can see the devil over here on the uh, side of the picture. And I love the title, Oxford C.S. Lewis, His Heresy, Christianity. Some things never change. Academia is not always the most warm and hospitable place uh, for the Christian faith. So uh, to put this in context, I want us again to say together our uh, scripture passage from Ephesians that is about the schemes of the devil. So let's say this together. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, 
that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. So that is a long verse, but it is such an apt verse for this book because it is all about understanding that we are in a battle. And as we talked about last week, if you believe that you're on a walk in a park instead of in a battle, you behave very differently. And part of Lewis's reasoning in writing the Screwtape Letters is to help us understand uh, what it means to be in the battle. So some of the lessons, as we said last week, we want to try to draw out from this book to understand the battle that we're in, to understand what it means to think Christianly and to develop a Christian worldview, uh, to learn about the psychology of temptation, to look at habits that cultivate, uh, habits that we can cultivate that will deepen our faith in Christ. And I want to just talk a moment about that. Usually when people read Screwtape, they're just thinking about the psychology of temptation. And that's a very valuable lens. But I think an equally important, if not more important lens, is looking at what is the devil trying to tempt the patient away from. Because there is a lot of wisdom in looking at what it is that the devil doesn't want him to do. And then thinking about, are we incorporating those things in our life? Because that will lead us to the last point of living a boldly Christian life. Screwtape makes a great distinction between people who are nominally Christian and people who are actually living out their faith. So uh, from last week, we looked at the original published preface, and we talked about the fact that this book was written in 1940, 1941, uh, at the height of the war in England during the Blitz in London, where they were thinking Oxford was going to have bombs rained on it any day. Uh, it was a very fraught period. Lewis was so concerned about this that he had his handwritten manuscript copied, and he sent it in two different places, and then sent the typed one to the publisher in London, because he was so afraid that with the bombing that the manuscript would be destroyed and this work would be lost. So... Um, one of the things we talked a little bit about last week is there are actually three prefaces that have been written to this book. There's the published one that we're going to talk about first, but then there are two more. Uh, there's one that was just discovered a couple of years ago that is probably the earliest preface, and we're going to talk a little bit about that, and then we'll talk about the 1961 preface, and then hopefully get into the first letter. So we'll see how far we get. Uh, but the first preface, this one that we talked about last week, is very important because he talks about uh, the fact that for us to fight against the devil, to fight against the powers of darkness, uh, the first thing to do is to do what Jesus did, 
which is to quote scripture, to rest on the truth of scripture, which is what Jeff was just preaching about. And the second thing is to jeer and flout him because the devil being a proud spirit cannot bear to be scorned. So that was the first principle in the preface. The second thing Lewis talked about was that we tend to fall into two equal and opposite errors about the devil and demons. One is to completely disbelieve in their existence. Uh, The other is to think that there's a devil under every bush. And we said it's kind of like the the, uh, church lady on Saturday Night Live, you know, talking on that, could it be Satan? And sometimes we we act like that. But I wanted to uh, commend to you, uh, well, I always want to commend to you all of the handouts, even those of you that are on the beach that aren't reading handouts. But um, this New Yorker article is very interesting. It's an interview uh, with the Supreme Court Justice Scalia. And I just want to read to you the first part. It says, Scalia brought the devil out of the darkness and into the limelight in an interview with New York Magazine after talking about heaven and hell. He said, I even believe in the devil. You do, said the interviewer. Yes, he's a real person, Scalia explained. But it is curious. In the Gospels, the devil's doing all sorts of things. He's making pigs run off cliffs. He's possessing people and whatnot. And that doesn't happen very much anymore. Near the end of his excursus on evil, Scalia said, you're looking at me as though I'm weird. He continued, most of mankind has believed in the devil for all of history. Many more intelligent people than you or me, that's bold, um, (laughs) have believed in the devil. When all other explanations seemed to fail, he asked the interviewer, have you read the screw tape letters? So it's just an interesting little vignette about where our culture is about this belief. And then the last thing that Lewis says is the devil is a liar. One of his names in scripture is the father of lies. And Lewis says, readers are advised to remember that the devil is a liar. Not everything Screwtape says should be assumed to be true, even from his own angle. And that is a good thing to keep in mind. So I want us to spend a little bit of time talking about the handwritten manuscript preface. Um, This is perhaps a little bit of an indulgence because I'm such a nerd about this kind of thing. But it is fascinating to me that this preface, which Lewis sent to his friend, Sister Penelope, uh, who was the head of the convent at Wantage near Oxford, um, has a very different take on how the screw tape letters are positioned than the published preface. And the interesting thing about it, um, as I said last week, was that this manuscript was sold by Sister Penelope at Lewis's suggestion to raise money for the convent. And it went to the New York Public Library, which is not a bastion of Lewis studies. And so it languished in obscurity, and no one knew it was there. And then it was rediscovered in 2016 and caused a sensation in the scholarly world. And part of the reason for that is that in this preface, Lewis talks about the Screwtape Letters as being part of the Space Trilogy uh, storyline. So in the Space Trilogy, which is a science fiction work where Dr. Ransom, who is a uh, linguist, is kidnapped and sent to Mars. And uh, there's a whole... it's 
really great, but we're not talking about that book tonight, so I'll restrain myself. Uh, but anyway, he goes to Mars, and in, in that he learns that there's this interplanetary conspiracy going on led by the devil and the forces of evil to try to bend, which means to affect with evil, all of the creation. And the only place they've succeeded is with Earth, which is called the silent planet because it's lost the language to speak to God because of having fallen to the schemes of the devil. So here, in this preface, Lewis has Dr. Ransom be the one that has discovered these letters as part of his work um, in these other planets. And so Malachandra is Mars uh, in this story. And so uh, with the help of the angels on that planet, Ransom learns the language that's the original language of the universe that he calls Old Solar, which is full of all sorts of medieval allusions for Lewis that we're not going to go into. Uh, but cool, though, that might... You have no idea how I'm restraining myself. Um, so Ransom learns this language, and he discovers that these interplanetary demons are conspiring against Earth, and then he discovers these letters. And so these letters are supposed to be kind of a window into the thinking of the powers of evil that are operating at the cosmic level. So it puts a much bigger frame on it than just individual temptation. So it's very interesting. And then he talks about um, Dr. Ransom, because he's a linguist, translating the letters. And he says... Um, and these are Lewis's words uh, directly from that preface. And I'm not going to read you all of this, but part of what he says that's so interesting is he says, the capital letters used for pronouns when they refer to that being whom Screwtape describes as the enemy are, for example, a most ingenious device of ransoms for representing a quite different and involuntary phenomenon in the original. On the other hand, many words mentioned where Screwtape is discussing what he calls the philological arm were already English, for naturally devils whose terrain is England are well-skilled in the language of their proposed victims. And so, to translate that, if that didn't make any sense to you, um, what he's saying is that there's all sorts of horrible language used to refer to God, which is words that are not as presentable as the enemy. And so Ransom has uh, adapted the language and taken all those as a group and used the enemy to refer to God from the, the perspective of the underworld. And then the last part is harping on this point that people miss all too often in Screwtape, which is about the corruption of language, that one of the schemes of the devil is to take language and make it mean things that it didn't mean before or to lose meaning from words that used to be robust. So I will just give you one example of this. I'm sorry, this is probably a slightly controversial example, but just <laughs> go with me. Um, the word tolerance used to mean, when I was a child, that you respected the fact that there were people that had, might have different beliefs than you did 
about something and you would respect that belief, even though you might violently disagree with it, you would respect it and you could have civil discourse with those people and indeed love those people even though you profoundly disagreed with them. But tolerance has been redefined uh, in the past few decades to essentially mean that you have to accept everyone else's point of view as being equally valid with your own, not just in terms of their right to hold it, but in terms of the merits of it. And that is a very, very big change. And Lewis is all about this effect on language, partially because he loved linguistics and philology. But uh, the fact that he mentions that in this preface is very interesting. So there are probably not a lot of people that know about this in Charleston, so you can now think of yourself as the cognoscenti. Um, if you get bored at a cocktail party, you can bring out the recently discovered handwritten screw tape preface, and um, I'm sure you'll win a lot of friends through that. No additional fee. So... In the 1961 edition, which is much later, 20 years after this book was first published, keep in mind that at this point, Screwtape Letters has sold millions and millions of copies. It still sells over 150,000 copies a year. Um, Keep in mind also that, remember last time we talked about Lewis originally serialized this in a church newspaper called The Guardian, Lewis refused to accept any money for it. When it was published, he did accept a little bit of money that he then turned around and gave all of it to a fund for widows and orphans. So all of the profits of all of those books went not to Lewis, but to charity. So the 1961 edition is interesting because it has a really long preface. Prefaces aren't usually really long, but this one is multiple pages, and we're going to hit some of the highlights because part of what's interesting about it is that Lewis answers questions that were posed to him by readers and reviewers, and he tries to pick the ones that were posed the most often and answer them. So it gives you uh, some extra insight before you launch into the work itself to see what he's talking about. So... Uh, The first thing that he does, though, is a lot of self-deprecating humor, and one of the ones that he includes in this preface is the one that we talked about last week, that The Guardian, when it published some of these letters, got a letter to the editor from a country clergyman, a Church of England priest, who wrote complaining about these letters and withdrew his subscription on the grounds that much of the advice given in these letters seemed to him not only erroneous, but positively diabolical. (laughs) So the man was uh, quite put off by that, didn't quite understand what was going on. But the other thing that was really funny in the preface is Lewis talks about how he thinks part of the reason that people uh, give this book uh, or buy this book is they like to give it to people. He said it's the kind of book that ends up in people's guest rooms under other titles like The Life of the Bee. (laughs) And then he said, it also gets given to confirmation uh, students. And he said the worst was that he was at uh, a meeting and one of his friends was there who had just gotten out of the hospital. And he said, oh, the friend said, oh, when I was in the hospital, the, the young girl probationer who was being trained as a nurse 
said that she had read the screw tape letters just out of the blue. And the guy said, I was so struck by that. I said, oh, why were you reading that? And then the girl looked at him and said, well, honestly, in part of our training, we're told that we need to read some books that people might have read so that we have something to talk about with patients. And so the guy was like, well, that's still probably okay. Why did you pick Screwtape? It was the shortest. <laughs> so Lewis starts the preface with all of that, and then he goes on to answer certain questions. And the first is a question about belief and the devil. And you'll see that in the bottom of the slide here. And he said, the commonest question is whether I really believe in the devil. Now, if by the devil you mean a power opposite to God and like God, self-existent from all eternity, the answer is certainly no. There is no uncreated being except God. God has no opposite. No being could attain a perfect badness opposite to the perfect goodness of God. For when you have taken away every kind of good thing, intelligence, will, memory, energy, and existence itself, there would be none of him left. Well, I commend that to you. That is one of the most succinct distinctions between Christianity and dualism and all sorts of other views about good and evil. And it's very well put, and it will stand up to scrutiny. So... Then he goes on to say, the proper question is whether I believe in devils. I do. That is to say, I believe in angels, and I believe that some of these, by the abuse of their free will, have become enemies to God and as a corollary to us. These we may call devils. They do not differ in nature from good angels, but their nature is depraved. Devil is the opposite of angel, only as bad man is the opposite of good man. Satan, the leader or dictator of devils, is the opposite not of God, but of Michael. And this, this is important because we have, there's all sorts of bad theology out there that people have sort of picked up without really studying, that's not really scriptural. And I would say this is a scriptural view about this. Now, this does not mean that the devil and demons are without power. They've got lots of power, but they are not the opposite equal of God by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, a lot of times we tend to think of Satan as God's evil twin. You know, it's like, and he's not omnipotent. He's not right, right. present. He's and ultimately, present. he's crushed down under Christ's right. feet. Right. But we forget that. Yeah. So this, this is important. And then the next part is probably even more important because if we've got wrong ideas. Remember, we talked last week, when you think about the devil, what do you think about? Right, and where's, what's he wearing? Pitchfork, red suit, tail, horns. Yeah, we think about that. And angels are even worse. So, uh, and he says it should be, but it's not unnecessary to add that a belief in angels, whether good or evil, does not mean a belief in either, as they are represented in art and literature. Devils are depicted with bat's wings and good angels with bird's wings, not because anyone holds that moral deterioration would be likely to turn feathers into membrane, but because most men like birds better than bats. They're given wings at all in order to suggest the swiftness of unimpeded intellectual energy. They're given human form because man is the only rational creature we know. 
And then he says, the soft, slim, girlish, and consolatory angels of 19th century art shaped so feminine that they avoid being voluptuous only by their total insipidity. The frigid houries of a detestable paradise are a pernicious symbol. In scripture, the visitation of an angel is always alarming. It has to begin by saying, fear not. The Victorian angel looks as if it were going to say, there, there. (laughs) And I think he just nails that. And we live in a culture that is affected by the Hallmark card school of theology. And we think of angels as cute little pink puffy things that are floating around with clouds. And that is not it. Angels are warriors. And when you look in scripture, every time an angel appears, fear not, do not be afraid. Well, there's a reason for that. They're scary. And I'm sorry to tell you, ladies, but there are no female angels. In scripture, all angels are male, and they are warriors. So Lewis is clearing up a lot of things here, and again, doing it very succinctly. And then he talks a little bit about why he is not happy about some of the literary angels that are part of our patrimony. And he says he likes the ones in Dante because they are full of rage, spite, and obscenity. And he said that is probably very accurate in terms of what they are like. But the flip side of it is that when you get to the angels in Milton, they are so grand and full of high poetry that they have done harm. And he says they remind him of the angels that you see in Homer and in Raphael, and they are they're, they're too attractive. And remember, we said last week, part of what was so interesting about the incubation of screw tape letters is that Lewis was writing his seminal work on Paradise Lost, on Milton, right at the same time. The two manuscripts on his desk at the same time. So part of Screwtape is reacting against um, this view he saw on Milton that he thought was wrong. But the one he really doesn't like is Goethe. Um, and has anybody in here read Faust? Okay. Well, I commend to you, don't, don't go read Faust. That's probably too much to ask. But if you are curious, just go to Wikipedia and read the summary of Faust, and that will help you. But in that, Faust is really the evil person. He's the scheming genius. But the devil character is Mephistopheles. And Mephistopheles is urbane. He's charming. He's the kind of person you'd want to talk to at a cocktail party. Um, And that... Lewis says, is really dangerous. He says, the humorous, civilized, sensible, adaptable Mephistopheles has helped to strengthen the illusion that evil is liberating. And I think there's a lot of truth in that. And going back to you two for a minute, Bono is not a bad theologian in a lot of ways. And so part of what he did on one of his tours was he adopted the character of Mephistopheles And people were like, why is there a character from Faust in a rock concert? Um, But he was trying to make some points about the nature of evil and corruption. All right, so then one of the other questions he was asked a lot is, do you really believe in hell? And if you do believe in hell, what is hell really like? And obviously, he 
his first disclaimer is, I don't know, I haven't been there. Um, <laughs> but he, he does make some, some assumptions. So he says, we must picture hell as a state where everyone is perpetually concerned about his own dignity and advancement, where everyone has a grievance, and where everyone lives the deadly serious passions of envy, self-importance, and resentment. This sounds kind of familiar. <laughs> and, and then he says, my own choice of symbols depended, I suppose, on temperament and on the age. I like bats much better than bureaucrats. I live in the managerial age in the world of admin. The greatest evil is not now done in those sordid dens of crime that Dickens loved to paint. It is not done even in concentration camps and labor camps and those we see its final result. But it is conceived and ordered, moved, seconded, carried, and minuted in clean, carpeted, warmed, and well-lighted offices by quiet men with white collars and cut fingernails and smooth-shaven cheeks who do not need to raise their voice. Hence, naturally enough, my symbol for hell is something like the bureaucracy of a police state or the offices of a thoroughly nasty business concern. Mm -hmm. And I think that is very important, because we tend, just as we think about the devil as in the black limo with the red tail and the pitchfork, we think of evil in kind of a Dickensian way of like these nasty people that haven't shaved and they're probably their eyes are red and they you know they're loud and they smell bad and all of that and we don't think about the fact that evil can be institutionalized and that's part of what Lewis is trying to get at in Screwtape is that evil can be institutionalized and that when a whole institution is about evil you'd better watch out and so when he refers to uh, the, the mechanism of the way hell is governed, uh, it is all about bureaucracy and departments and all of that, forms and triplicate. It's kind of like any of you that traveled to France in the 1970s and had to register for a hotel. It's kind of like that. 20 forms to fill out before you can check into your room. So this whole idea of bureaucracy and institutionalized evil underlies all of screw tape. And this, jumping back to that handwritten preface that you're going to talk about at your next cocktail party, <laughs> jumping back to that for a minute, that goes along with this idea that there is a scheme, a broad scheme in the cosmic battle between God and the forces of evil that this is all part of it, that institutionalizing evil, just as devaluing language, these, these kinds of things are the slippery slope. They're the things that you don't stand up like you would about a concentration camp because you don't see it, and the evil is more subtle, and we need to be aware of that. So then he talks about how do devils work together, and... Part of what he wants to get at is that there is no good thing in hell or in the evil world. And uh, because Lewis has such a high view of friendship uh, that we talked about in our last uh, course, he wants to make very clear that the devils are not friends with each other. Um, you know, you always hear that old joke about um, 
you know, I want to go to hell because it will be so much more interesting. The parties will be better. And, um, you know, Lewis says that that kind of thinking is absolutely crazy. There's no such thing as friendship in hell. And he says a being which can still love is not yet a devil. In Screwtape, I was able to picture an official society held together entirely by fear and greed. On the surface, manners are normally suave. Rudeness to one's to superiors would obviously be suicidal. Rudeness to one's equal might put them on their guard before you were ready to spring your mind. For, of course, dog-eat-dog is the principle of the whole organization. Everyone wishes everyone else's discrediting, demotion, and ruin. Everyone is an expert in the confidential report, the pretended alliance, the stab in the back. Over all this, their good manners, their expressions of grave respect, their tributes to one another's invaluable services form a thin crust. Every now and then it gets punctured, and the scalding lava of their hatred spurts out. And so part of what he's trying to do here is contrast this against the vision of what the kingdom of heaven is like. That in the kingdom of heaven, the thing that distinguishes Christians, the reason that people will, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples by how you love one another. And so part of the way that we distinguish ourselves and move on to higher and solid ground in our faith is to practice love and friendship in the truly Christian way. Because our culture is bending toward what I just read to you. Um, anyone who has worked in a, um, this is sort of a loaded word, but a toxic organization where there is just a lot of bad leadership and people are afraid and they're scheming and plotting and all that, right. that's exactly what he's talking about. Now, I'm sure no one has ever worked anywhere like that or heard of anywhere like that. Uh, but part of our job as Christians is to realize that is not what we are made for. And that when we live into love and we live into friendship and we live into serving others with no expectation of reward, that stands out as this unbelievable contrast. It's just like in Philippians where it says, do everything without arguing or complaining and then it goes on to say, so that you may stand out like stars in a dark sky as you hold out the word of truth. And Lewis is trying to get all of that across. So then he goes from important theology to just mere curiosity. Where do the devil's names come from? And he says that the names of my devils have excited a good deal of curiosity, and there have been many explanations all wrong. <laughs> the truth is that I aimed merely at making them nasty by the sound. Once a name was invented, I might speculate like anyone else, and with no more authority than anyone else, as to the phonetic associations which cause the unpleasant effect. I fancy that Scrooge, Screw, Thumbscrew, Tapeworm, and Red Tape all do some work in my hero's name, and that slob, slobber, slubber, and gob have all gone into slub gob. So remember, for Lewis, language is unbelievably important. The sound of language. And the whole idea, remember, way back we talked about this, part of Lewis's thesis about the remarkable 
fact of being made in the image of God is that mankind is the only, only, only part of creation that has real language. And that that makes us godlike. And remember that in the creation story in Narnia, he has Aslan sing Narnia into creation, and then he speaks it into life. So this whole idea of language is very, very resonant for Lewis. And so as much as beauty, truth, and goodness are important in language, in hell and Screwtape, it would be the other extreme. So, and then this is another little uh, part of his humor at the end of the preface. Did you do academic study on temptation? I thought about that for a little bit. That might be kind of fun. Uh, But he said, some have paid me an undeserved compliment by supposing that my letters were the ripe fruit of many years' study in moral and ascetic theology. They forgot that there is an equally reliable, though less creditable, way of learning how temptation works. My heart, I need no others, showeth me the wickedness of the ungodly. (laughs) One of the things that I love in some of the descriptions of Lewis is that uh, some of the people who knew him best said things like, he was the most thoroughly converted man I ever met. And numerous other people talked about Lewis's humility. And many of you know that great quotation from Lewis, that humility is not thinking less of yourself, but it is thinking of yourself less. And in our culture, which is on the high arc of narcissism right now, that whole idea of thinking less of yourself is absolutely radical. So Lewis is definitely on to something with that. So... Oh, good. We're doing all right. So we're going to get to the first letter. Um, Just a word about these letters. I would encourage you um, to get your own copy of the book. And I would encourage you to get one that is not beautiful. I am all about beautiful books. It's one of my great pleasures in life to hold a beautiful book that is on wonderful paper and all that, but I want you to get one that you don't feel bad about writing in. So get one that you don't feel bad about writing in, because I find, particularly with this book, that underlining is very helpful and some margin notes. And one of the reasons for that is that this book is not indexed. And so if you are trying to find a passage, because it's not it kind of jumps around all over the place. It can be very hard to find what you were looking for. And also, I think emulating the footsteps of the master is always a good thing. Um, Lewis was a huge note-taker in his books. And one of the really cool things that I got to do last time I was in Oxford, a friend of mine has Lewis's old job at Maudlin College. And this guy's name is Simon Harabin. He is a genius. He's probably 42. Um, deeply Christian, really active at St. Ebbs, which is a big Anglican church in Oxford. But Simon is probably the world expert on Piers Plowman. I don't know if you know Piers Plowman, but very important work in the development of English literature. But he went into the Maudlin College Library and was rummaging around in there, and he managed to find in a box 
some of Lewis's own copies of various works of literature. And he showed me Lewis's copy of Piers Plowman. And Lewis had read it multiple times, and each time he read it, he took notes on it in a different color so that he could tell what he had thought about it before. And interestingly, some of the notes are in Latin. Sure, all of us make our margin notes in Latin. But the interesting thing about it is you can tell from the kind of notes and the underlining how deeply Lewis was interacting with this text at a deeply thoughtful level. And I think for a lot of us, we're kind of afraid to do that with the book. So I want to just give you permission to do that. Feel free to circle, underline, highlight, whatever, whatever is helpful to you. Um, the approach that I intend to take with these letters, we're not going to read all of them. Um, we're going to read a lot of them, and I don't know how long that's going to take. So we'll just see um, how long we last with it. But I think there's so much wisdom in these. And the other thing about these is these letters are made to be read aloud. So you're just going to have to endure my doing that. Uh, but I also want to commend to you there are two really good recordings of these letters that are out there. One of them that got the UK Audio Book of the Year Award, which is a really big deal, uh, is John Cleese of Monty Python reading the Screwtape Letters. And it is fabulous. So I, I commend that to you. There also is a focus on the family one that is, that is very good as well. Uh, so that being said, we're probably not ever going to do more than one letter at a time, um, and we will skip around a little bit. So we're going to launch into letter one, and just remember the conceit here is that Screwtape, the author of the letters, is a senior devil high up in the bureaucracy of our father below's house, and he is writing to his nephew, Wormwood, who is a junior tempter who is trying to learn the ropes. And the assignment that Wormwood has been given is he's been given a patient uh, who is a young man in his 20s in England. And Wormwood's job is to keep the patient from becoming a Christian, and if he does become a Christian, to drag him out of Christianity one way or another. So that's what's going on, and Screwtape is trying to give advice to Wormwood about how to do that. So the first letter, and you have the text of this as one of the handouts. My dear Wormwood, I note what you say about guiding our patient's reading and taking care that he sees a good deal of his materialist friend. But are you not being a trifle naive? It sounds as if you suppose that argument was the way to keep him out of the enemy's clutches. Remember, again, the enemy is God. That might have been so if he had lived a few centuries earlier. At that time, the humans still pretty well knew when a thing was proved and when it was not. And if it was proved, they really believed it. They still connected thinking with doing and were prepared to alter their way of life as the result of a chain of reasoning. But what with the weekly press and other such weapons, we have largely altered that. 
Your man has been accustomed ever since he was a boy to have a dozen incompatible philosophies dancing about together inside his head. He doesn't think of doctrines as primarily true or false, but as academic or practical, outworn or contemporary, conventional or ruthless. Jargon, not argument, is your best ally in keeping him from the church. Don't waste time trying to make him think that materialism is true. Make him think that it is strong or stark or courageous, that it is the philosophy of the future. That's the sort of thing he cares about. The trouble about argument is that it moves the whole struggle onto the enemy's own ground. He can argue too. Whereas in really practical propaganda of the kind I'm suggesting, he has been shown for centuries to be greatly the inferior of our father below, that is, Satan. By the very act of arguing, you awake the patient's reason. And once it is awake, who can foresee the result? Even if a particular train of thought can be twisted so as to end in our favor, you will find that you have been strengthening in your patient the fatal habit of attending to universal issues and withdrawing his attention from the stream of immediate sense experiences. Your business is to fix his attention on the stream. Teach him to call it real life, and don't let him ask what he means by real. Remember, he is not like you, a pure spirit. Never having been a human, oh, that abominable advantage of the enemies. You don't realize how enslaved they are to the pressure of the ordinary. Now, I want to just pause there for a minute. One of the things that is somewhat chilling about Screwtape is that all of the strategies to be used to keep the patient away from God, and remember, this was being written in the 1940s, they seem to have come true in our culture in a very alarming way. So if you think, and we've talked about this before in here, but the whole idea that it used to be not too many generations ago that when you were taught in school, part of what you were taught was logic. And you were taught logic, and then you were taught about fallacious reasoning, and you, you learned how to evaluate the strength of an argument on its merits or its weaknesses. And what Wormwood is being told by Screwtape here is you don't want any of that kind of thing going on. You just want people, you don't want people to think, you just want them to hear what other people say, and then you want them to think that as they hear these things, that that sounds strong or courageous or the philosophy of the future or progressive or whatever it might be. And so the whole idea of truth with a capital T is gone largely from our culture. And in its place is relativism, which if you ever go to a philosophy department in a college, even one that doesn't have any Christians in it, they will tell you that relativism is pretty much untenable from an intellectual standpoint. But we don't worry about that. And he says this right in the middle of that first paragraph, that he's been accustomed since his childhood, to have any number of incompatible philosophies rumbling around in his head at the same time, and it doesn't bother him at all. 
And then the next thing about this that is so interesting is that Screwtape says to Wormwood that you don't want to deal with argument. Because if you're dealing with a real argument where people are setting out positions and backing them up with evidence, that moves you onto the enemy's territory. And what he's getting at, he's not quite admitting it, and you're going to see this a lot in these letters, that Screwtape can't bear to say anything positive about the enemy. But what he's getting at here is that truth is the territory of the enemy, the, the territory of God, and that you don't want to get anywhere near that because when, you, when truth starts coming in, what's the sword of the Spirit? Scripture. When, when truth starts coming in, um, the devil's schemes get exposed for what they are. Right, that's what he's saying. but he's gonna he's gonna go down fighting, right. yeah. Yeah, 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 and because he is so proud, even though he it's like that, he won't admit it. It's like people that play the lottery. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so anyway, uh, moving along with that little bit of context, Screw Tape continues. I once had a patient, a sound atheist, who used to read in the British Museum. One day, as he sat reading, I saw a train of thought in his mind beginning to go the wrong way. The enemy, of course, was at his elbow in a moment. Before I knew where I was, I saw my 20 years' work beginning to totter. If I had lost my head and begun to attempt a defense by argument, I should have been undone. But I was not such a fool. I struck instantly at the part of the man which I had best under my control and suggested that it was just about time he had some lunch. The enemy presumably made the counter-suggestion, you know how one can never quite overhear what he says to them, that this was more important than the lunch. At least I think that must have been his line from when I said quite, in fact, much too important to tackle it at the end of a morning. The patient brightened up considerably, and by the time I had added much better come back after lunch and go into it with a fresh mind, he was already halfway to the door. Once he was in the street, the battle was won. I showed him a newsboy shouting the midday paper and a number 73 bus going past. And before he reached the bottom of the steps, I'd got him into an unalterable conviction that whatever odd ideas might come into a man's head when he was shut up alone with his books, a healthy dose of real life, by which he meant the bus and the newsboy, was enough to show him that all that sort of thing just couldn't be true. Now, this is a very rich paragraph that we're going to unpack a little bit more next week, but there are just a few things I want you to notice. The first one is, what's the patient doing who's the sound atheist? He's reading, and where's he reading? At the British Museum. And how does Screwtape feel about the fact that this guy is reading? Yes, not good, because the trains of thought can do what? Yes, they can go the wrong way. And just the fact that this guy is reading 20 years of Screwtape's work is tottering. So just as a little preview, one of the things we're going to talk about next week is that reading might be really important. <laughs> it might be really important for Christians to read. And the other thing that is really important is that where he's reading is 
absolutely beautiful. It is a place of architectural magnificence. And it is a place that was built in the era where in architecture it was still portrayed that the heavens were the source of all truth and sublime knowledge. And it is no accident that every library that you go to that was built before the 19th century has a high ceiling, very often with a dome or a vault, that churches are built the same way and public buildings are built the same way because there's theology in that architecture. And so he is reading in a room that is laden with beauty. And he is laden with this beauty in a room that also is full of light. Look at all those windows. So remember, part of what we talked about with Lewis and Tolkien and the Inklings is their understanding that part of Satan's job um, that Tolkien used to call Mordor in our midst, Mm -hmm. that part of Satan's job, that what he wants to do is to get everybody inside all the time in ugly architecture and squat little Soviet pancake buildings (laughs) and squat little cars that you get into before dark and then you drive to an ugly office where you're in an ugly little cubicle with fluorescent light and then you get back in your little car and drive back to a depressing place where you live. And the result of that is that you have removed all natural revelation from your life. There's no beauty to contemplate. There's no ray of God light that's coming. And the result of all of that is that you begin to live in a subhuman way. And, well, I could go on and on about that, but we're almost out of time. Um, Just also to point out the newsboy... Not going to go off on the news and the media, but but just a word. If you want to practice the presence of God, spending a lot of time with news media is not going to help you. Um, News media is usually alarmist. Um, It will take your train of thought that God was working with and just blow it out. And most of us, Well, I shouldn't say that because I don't know. I don't follow you around every day. (laughs) Probably most of us find a lot more time to be on media and social media than we do in the Word of God or reading things that are full of truth, beauty, and goodness. And then the last thing, the 73 bus. The idea that all of this, this is reality and that is not that the kingdom of God is pie in the sky and it's not real, that buses are real and newspapers and media are real. And of course, the truth is that the kingdom of God is what is built on a foundation that cannot be shaken and the kingdom of this world is designed to fall. So um, just to wrap up very quickly, um, he concludes this letter. He knew he'd had a narrow escape and in later years was fond of talking about that inarticulate sense for actuality, which is our ultimate safeguard against the aberrations of mere logic. That doesn't mean anything because Lewis intended it not to. (laughs) He is now safe in our father's house. 
you begin to see the point. Thanks to processes which we set at work in them centuries ago, they find it all but impossible to believe in the unfamiliar while the familiar is before their eyes. Keep pressing home on him the ordinariness of things. Above all, do not attempt to use science. I mean, the real sciences as a defense against Christianity. They will positively encourage him to think about realities he can't touch and see. There have been sad cases among the modern physicists. If he must dabble in science, keep him on economics and sociology. Don't let him get away from that invaluable real life. But the best of all is to let him read no science, but to give him a grand general idea that he knows it all and that everything that he happens to have picked up in casual talk and reading is the results of modern investigation. Do remember you are there to fuddle him. From the way some of you young fiends talk, anyone would suppose it was our job to teach. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. So um, on that note, just the little quotation that we will end with each time, I think this is one of the most profound things in this book. Our cause, this is Satan's cause, our cause is never more in danger than when a human no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemy's will looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. So on that note, let us pray. Father, we thank you for the deep truth and wisdom that is contained in this book about what it means to follow you and to love you with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Lord, we pray that as we walk through this week, that you would help us to remember that we are in a battle and that we would lean into those things that will draw us into the truth, beauty, and goodness of your kingdom and your word. Lord, we pray that you would surround us with your Holy Spirit, that as we live our lives, you might draw others to you through our witness. For we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you all so much for coming.